0: 1032 podcast We're very thankful for that verse in the New Testament which says that God's grace is sufficient for us because there is a tired preacher today and tired parishioners. So we're going to pray for God's grace to profit. Let's bow our heads and pray. Our loving heavenly Father, we thank you for the verses that have just been read for us and now we pray that you would help us to grasp them, to believe them, to live in the light of them and to spread them through our lives to others. Please help us in our weakness with your sufficient grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been on a little journey going through Luke 14 through to 17 and we come to the end of that little section this morning. We come to the end of Luke 17 And since there are days to go to the new year, it's a very appropriate passage that we're looking at because it's got to do with what is coming. And Australians, for some funny reason, go into the new year with a great sense of optimism. I suppose it's not a really dangerous thing, but we keep thinking that with the fireworks, the new year will just be fantastic. And every year brings an enormous amount of challenge and difficulty, as well as many blessings and gifts. And it's a good thing for us to have the perspective of Luke 17, because it lights up exactly the year that we're going into. Now, what Jesus teaches in Luke 17 is that the kingdom has come. I hope everybody knows that. But the kingdom is also coming as we are taught in the Lord's prayer to pray your kingdom come. So the kingdom has come and the kingdom is coming. And if you want to understand this, you've got to intersect or have in your mind two intersecting circles. One is the world and one is the kingdom. And when Jesus came, the kingdom intersected the world. But one day the kingdom will completely cover and replace the world. And so there are many people in the world who are in the world but are in the kingdom. They're very much part of this world, but they're also very much belonging to Jesus. And these are the people, many of us here today, who look forward to and long for the complete coming of Jesus to cover and to replace the world. And I assure you that when Jesus comes completely, it will be a very wonderful time. We will suddenly see our maker, the one who loves us more than anyone else, who will completely eliminate evil and who will bring in justice and will set up a reign and a rule which is so unopposed and perfect as to be quite sensational. And uh, I guess we can only think and use our imagination to work out how wonderful that will really be. Now, it doesn't do any harm if you're a Christian to live waiting for the second coming, even to die waiting for the second coming, because it remains true that Jesus may return any minute of any hour of any day of any year. And it's also a fact that those who have lived waiting and expecting the second coming have lived most wisely in this world. So show me the person who has lived with their eye on eternity and I'll show you the person who has made the best impact in this world. Show me the person who has lived with their eye on the temporary, and I'll show you somebody who cannot make a great impact on this world. Well, I'm sure also by way of introduction that we don't need any more evidence from our eyes and ears that this world is is in destruction, that there is a dislocation, there is a disintegration going on. And we've seen even in the last 48 hours some of the evidence for this. But uh, this is also a very beautiful world. And so we live in this world appreciating what God has given, enjoying much of it, enduring much of it. But the believer actually looks forward to the return and the appearance of Jesus Christ. Now in Luke 17, Jesus addresses two groups. You'll see, first of all, the Pharisees in verse 20 and then the disciples in verse 22. So once again, as we've seen in this whole series, he is surrounded by the outsiders and the insiders, and he has something to say to both of them. What will he say to the outsiders? He says to the outsiders, the kingdom has come. Wake up. What does he say to the insiders? The kingdom is coming. Wake up. I hope you know that the kingdom of God the rule of God, is a monarchy. If the veil of heaven could be removed and we could see into heaven with our eyes, as John was able to in the book of Revelation, we would see a throne and we would see that on the throne is the Lamb. And the Lamb is not voted in by us for a term of office, but he is there appointed by God forever. The kingdom of God is a monarchy not a republic. And this rule of God, this reign of God, is exercised wherever people surrender to Jesus. And therefore the rule of God means that God is in charge of those who have surrendered to him, whatever place they live. So as we come to uh, Luke 17 this morning, we're going to have two simple points. The first verses 20 to 21 a brief lesson in the kingdom come. And then from verse 22 to 37, a full lesson in the kingdom coming. First of all, then a brief lesson in the kingdom come. Having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied. Now, the Pharisees had a very big interest in the kingdom of God, They imagined, of course, the kingdom in their own way. They thought that it was something that uh, would be quite physical, would be quite uh, military, would be quite political, as I say. And um, maybe they were willing to think of Jesus as some kind of prophet, uh, some kind of guru that they could get uh, information from. And so they ask him, well, when will the kingdom come? We'll trust you as a prophet. When's it coming? And Jesus gives them two negatives. The first negative is that it won't come visibly. Pharisees, of course, were very interested in signs. Jesus says in verse 20, you can't see the kingdom come with the natural eye. You won't see it by observing. It's no good getting out your binoculars and looking for the kingdom. It's not going to come like that. Now, of course, Jesus was visible. And of course, his miracles were visible. But it takes God-given eyes to see the kingdom. It takes God-given eyes to see Jesus is king, bow down and surrender to him. And these Pharisees are going to need more than clever charts and graphs and measuring tapes to work out the kingdom. The second thing Jesus says is that people will not be able to say, here it is, or there it is, as if the kingdom is a kind of a place or a thing. You can't fly over the kingdom and point out the window and say, there it is down there. You can't look over a hill and say, look, here it is coming over the hill towards us. It's not the sort of thing that you can point to. So Jesus teaches the Pharisees, first of all, you can't see it with your binoculars and you can't see it by having someone point to it. And this is the shock message which he gives in verse 21 the kingdom of God is within you. Now, this is a verse that's been lifted out of context by many unbelievers very unhelpfully, and it's become a frighteningly famous verse. You'd be amazed how many people know how to quote this verse, the kingdom of God is within you. And they use it in a kind of a new age way to indicate that Jesus said the kingdom is inside everybody. And of course, if the kingdom is inside everybody, it's very convenient because you don't have to do anything. You don't have to repent or believe or obey or follow or trust. You've just got it. And they say, well, this is what Jesus himself said. And uh, it's a very, therefore, appealing text. I want to prove to you that Jesus does not mean this by this phrase. And uh, perhaps I can help you to have an answer if the quote comes up. And uh, the question that we need to ask is this. Who is Jesus speaking to? And the answer is, he is speaking to Pharisees. He's speaking to the opposition. He's speaking to his opponents. And therefore, not only is it unlikely that he would be comforting them, but it's almost absolutely certain that he would be challenging them. What is going to challenge your opposition? It's not going to challenge your opposition to say, well, relax, fellas, the kingdom is inside you. In fact, uh, this word, this kingdom is within you, the little phrase within you in the original language can have a whole range of meanings. It could mean it's in the midst of you. It could mean it's among you. It could mean it's within you. And it would have been much better if the NIV Bibles had gone with the word among, because then it would have made very simple sense. Jesus says the kingdom is among you, It's possible, of course, that what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees was something like this. The kingdom is actually an inward thing. The kingdom is actually a spiritual change of heart. But it's much, much more likely that what he is saying to them is you don't even recognize the kingdom. The king is among you. He is standing in the circle. You have surrounded me with your question And I am in the very midst of you as the king. The kingdom is among you. So he's rebuking the Pharisees for missing the coming of the king. He's already announced the kingdom is at hand. And now he stands and says, you're looking everywhere but to me. Now, before we leave this, uh, I think it is a very good corrective to the person. And often this is a very religious person who gives the impression that they are believing and hoping and sincere but they've got no time for Jesus. Is there anyone here this morning who would say I believe, I hope, I'm sincere but I don't really have a very great interest in Jesus? If that's the case you need to listen very carefully to what Jesus said to the Pharisees. I remember a lady leaving church once and she'd been brought by her boss and as she was walking out the door she said "Uh, of course you know I believe in God. I think she thought that uh, her boss had brought her because he thought that she was a pagan which he did and she said of course you know I believe in God and then she said I don't see where Jesus fits in but I believe in God And suddenly she gave completely away the fact that she was not a Christian because she had not really come to grips or come to grasp Jesus. And that's the case with the Pharisees. They believe in God. They believe in the kingdom. They're sincere. They're hopeful. But they will not or cannot take hold of Jesus. And so they miss the king. They miss the kingdom. The uh, very homely illustration which comes to mind of this is some people standing on a a railway station. You imagine a couple on a railway station and they're talking about travel, and everybody else is on the station and they're all full of expectation and uh, hopes. And the train pulls in and people start to get on board, and the couple just stay on the station. And the carriages remain open, and the couple just keep talking on the station. And then suddenly the carriages close, and the train moves off, and the couple are still on the station. They're talking travel, they're thinking travel, they're hopeful, but they've never actually joined the train, which is the essence of the journey. And so it is with Jesus. Jesus has come. It is as if the carriages of Jesus are open. Luke 13 go in the door, says Jesus. Luke 14, come to the feast, says Jesus. Luke 15, come back to the Father, says Jesus. The carriages are open. And yet the person stays on the platform and never enters. And then one day, says Jesus, the carriages will close. The train will move off. And the person has found that they have been in the company of people interested They've even watched other people enter, but they've never actually entered themselves. That's what Jesus teaches the Pharisees, a brief lesson in the kingdom come. Now the second point this morning, a full lesson in the kingdom coming, and I don't mean by this a long lesson, I just mean that there is a little more to it a full lesson in the kingdom coming, verses 22 to 37. These are people who have stepped into the train, they stand inside Jesus, they've surrendered to the king. What's the message that he's going to give these disciples? What is it that is so urgent about the kingdom? Answer, it's coming. And as I say, this is very great comfort for disciples, but it's also very great comfort challenge to stay alert and to be wise in the world. You've only got a certain number of years given to you to be in this world, so use them well. And before Jesus teaches on the coming of the kingdom, again he has two negatives. The first in verse 22 he says, "The, the time's coming, literally the days are coming, when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. In other words, says Jesus, there will be days of duress where you will long to see just one of the days of the coming kingdom, but you won't. And he prepares his disciples for the possibility that they will live all their days waiting, as of course they did. The second thing he teaches them is, verse 23, that there will be false prophets who will come along And they will point to some local guru. They will say, there he is, or here he is. And uh, we've seen over 2,000 years, many of these gurus appear. Many of the cults are led by false messiahs. Jesus says, don't be tricked into some kind of small-scale local messiah. Because, as he goes on to say from verses 24 through to 37, when the messiah comes... Nobody will miss. So he goes on in verses 24 to 37 to teach a number of things about the coming of the kingdom. And the first in verse 24 is that it will be unmistakable. The son of man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. When I first read that verse, I thought, oh, he must be teaching that it's going to be fast. And the coming of the Son of Man will be fast. Paul says it will be in the blink of an eye. And so it's always worth remembering, and I always find this challenging, that the whole takeover of the kingdom of God, the whole return of Jesus, could come between a conversation. It could come in the very midst of a Sunday service. It could come as you're on a train, a short journey, <clears throat> but this verse is not primarily teaching that the kingdom will come quickly it's teaching that it will be unmistakable just as lightning in the sky is seen by everybody you don't have to point to lightning for people jesus teaches that his coming will be unmistakable he teaches similarly in uh, luke chapter 21 where he says that the coming of his uh, that his coming will be cosmic there'll be a literal collapsing of the planets and everybody will see him. It will be an enormous spectacle. Nobody will have to say, is that him? Or there he is. It will be absolutely obvious to everybody, unmistakable. But he says to the disciples, verse 25, that um, it's also going to be after the cross. Just in case those 11 or 12 disciples thought that his return was seconds away. He says to them, verse 25, it will be after the crucifixion. First, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So it will be unmistakable. Second, it will be unexpected. Verses 26 to 29. uh, Two men, Noah and Lot. Interestingly, they're both very imperfect men. They both preach judgment. They were both ignored by the majority. But then the judgment came in Noah's day and fire came in Lot's day. And I want you to notice what people were doing when the judgment came. Notice what they were doing, verse 27. They were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage. Verse 28. They were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, and building. Now, there are 10 activities, and there's nothing wrong with any of them. There's nothing wrong with eating and drinking. There's nothing wrong with marrying and going to a wedding. There's nothing wrong with buying, selling, planting, building. Nothing wrong with any of those things. In fact, they're all very normal, and you may be engaged in half a dozen of them this week. But the point Jesus is making is that when everything seemed normal, suddenly the judgment came. Just when everybody was doing absolutely normal things, shopping, holidays, starting a new job, turning on the television, then the judgment came. So don't expect, says Jesus, some heavenly announcement. The only thing that is given to us to prepare us is the Word of God. Two things so far unmistakable. Unexpected. Third, it will be inevitable. Verses 30 to 33. Jesus says it'll be like this on the day the Son of Man's re- revealed. On that day, no one who's on the roof of his house with his goods inside should go down to get them. No one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. Now, what Jesus is saying very simply here is that the coming of the kingdom is going to be so cataclysmic, there's no point in thinking of going back for your suitcase. There's no point in coming in from the field to collect your favorite photo albums or something like that. In fact, it's a good thing to remember Lot's wife. She looked back, and of course she looked back because her heart was really in the world of Sodom, and she was turned into a pillar of salt. She made the great mistake of turning back. So the old order says Jesus will be completely over Everything that we've collected, whether it's furniture or paintings or ceramics or cars or whatever it is, it's going to be completely behind us. But the danger is that your heart is in those things. So it's a question of treasure. It's not that furniture and paintings and ceramics and cars are wrong. The question is, what do you love? And if you love the perishables... The danger is that you'll be with the perishables. But if you love the imperishables, that's where you'll be. Now friends, don't torture yourself with this this morning. Jesus is just making a simple point, and that is whatever you do, don't be a slave to the passing things. Make sure that on a regular basis you renew your commitment to the one who is coming, who will take you into the imperishables. And the last thing he says is that it will be divisive. Verses 34, 35. Two people in one bed, one taken. Two people grinding grain, one taken. Uh, It's an interesting uh, observation, isn't it? That uh, every now and again, someone says to me, and no doubt they say to you, when you start to talk to them about Christian things, they bring up somebody they know who's a believer, as if that person that they know will make them safe. Somebody said to me recently that their daughter-in-law's brother-in-law was a minister. I think this was designed to make me back off, as if to say, oh, well, you know, how, how safe could you be? Your daughter-in-law's brother-in-law is a minister. But Jesus says that a couple could be in bed That's how close they could be and one is in heaven and one is in hell. Two people could be in the same job together. That's how well they know the believer but the believer is carried as it were to to glory and the unbeliever left behind. Now please don't read these verses literally as though the second coming is going to be some kind of celestial vacuum cleaner which will pass over the world and suddenly people will be sucked up from their fields and their houses. That's not the point at all. That's to completely literalize what is meant to be a picture of division. All Jesus is simply saying is that when the return comes, there's going to be a division into two. And it doesn't matter how close your contact with the believer, the question is, do you know the king? And we ought to be saying to people every now and again who tell us that their archdeacon uh, grandfather was a, a great friend of theirs and therefore they're perfectly okay and they don't need to come to church, we need to say to them, isn't that tragic that you come so close to a believer and they enjoy heaven and you miss out? because that's what Jesus is teaching, it's divisive. Well, when the disciples hear these powerful words of the kingdom coming, that it's going to be unmistakable like lightning, it's going to be unexpected like the flood and the fire, it's going to be inevitable, bringing a new world, and it's divisive with two destinations. They call out in verse 37, where, Lord, and Jesus gives one of the most difficult answers in the whole of the Bible, where there is a dead body, There the vultures will gather. Now, of all the options for what this verse means, I will give you two. It's possible that Jesus is answering literally the question, where will the person left be? And he's saying to them, like a dead body, the vultures will move in. But I think it's more likely that he's using a picture of some kind of inevitable comfort. And he's saying something like this. It's so certain that you will arrive at the feast of God. You are so secure. It's almost like vultures to a carcass. Just as they are magnetically drawn to the feast of a body you will be magnetically drawn, divinely, supernaturally drawn to the feast of the kingdom. But uh, those are the best two that I can give as an interpretation of that verse. He's either saying the dead person, the person left behind, will be like the carcass left to the vultures, or he's giving a verse of encouragement to the believers that just as vultures flock to a carcass, the believers will be drawn to the feast. Well, if he had two groups in mind, let's finish this morning, and he addressed them both, we should finish with the same word this morning. So here is a word, first of all, to the person who's got some interest in the kingdom of God. That's why you're in church this morning, but you don't really understand Jesus the King. I want to ask you this question. Do you realize that he has already come and the door of the kingdom is open, because when he died on the cross, he opened the door of the kingdom. Therefore, please do not wait for, for writing to appear across the sky. Please do not wait for some little voice to come into your head. Please do not wait for yourself to suddenly improve so you get to the point where you think, yes, I really am now fit for heaven. What you need to do is go in prayer to Jesus kneel down in your room and give yourself to him and then you will belong to him and you will be in the train and you'll be ready for his return. Don't miss it. But to the majority here this morning who are disciples, what does this message teach us, especially as we move into a new year? I want to give you some quick suggestions. If the second coming is going to be global don't be fooled by anyone who reduces the kingdom to something in this world. There are enormous sections of the church who will tell you that if you want to take Jesus seriously, just do something local. But obviously, that's not it. It's a global thing, it's an eternal thing. Think eternity. Second, if the kingdom's going to come unexpectedly, Do keep witnessing to people in normal situations as you have meals with them, as you work with them. Let your life be a good light to them, honest, gracious, kind, patient, and where you have opportunity, a word in season. Because people are capable, sadly, of locking into the means of eating and drinking and buying as if they're the goal's. And you're about the only person who's going to help them to see that what they're doing should not be a goal, but the goal is something eternal. If the kingdom is going to sweep away everything that is material, ask yourself this morning if your heart is really fixed on the imperishables. Ask yourself if your children think that your heart is fixed on imperishables. And ask yourself if your desire for your children is that their hearts would be fixed on imperishables. It is, I think, shocking, if not disgusting, that on the Lower North Shore, people would adopt the priorities of the world and want for their children what the world wants for their children. That is the best school, the best education the best result, the best job, the best spouse, the best income, the best house to live in. We've got to move out of that. Jesus is teaching us that all of that is a killer and capable of completely absorbing the believer uh, to destruction. So we've got to teach our children to think beyond, enjoy what's around, but look well beyond it. And if the kingdom is going to divide people, and if you think that's harsh, remember that God himself was divided from his son. In other words, Jesus took separation in order that no one might be separated. And therefore, it is the obligation of everyone to take up what God offers at great expense. Well, let's pray for that perspective. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, at the end of this year, for which we have so much to thank you, and yet you have brought us through many dangers, toils and snares, we ask that you would help us to have the mind of Christ. We pray for the people here, perhaps this morning, who have never entered into the person of Christ. That you would give them the ability and the humility and the willingness and the courage to take hold of Christ. And we pray for the many here this morning who are in the kingdom and look forward to the coming of the kingdom, that you would help us to live as people of eternity, enjoying what you've given, enduring what is difficult. But looking forward and helping others look forward to the coming of Christ. And we ask it in His name. Amen. Hope 1032. Thanks for listening.